Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. We've been looking at tracing the, the path of the disciples and then Jesus during Jesus' arrest and his trials. We said that the disciples did not do well. All of them fall away. Last week we looked at Jesus. He embraces uh, the Father's will for him. He surrenders in the garden, and then we see that surrender uh, worked out during his arrest when he basically gives himself up, and then his trials when he doesn't defend himself at all. There's a Jewish trial. Jesus is found guilty of blasphemy, of taking on prerogatives and privileges that are God's only, and he does do that. If he's not telling the truth, then he is he, he is a blasphemer. And then he's handed over to, to the Romans because the Romans are the ones that have the power to execute. And he's found guilty of treason, of claiming to be the king. And again, he, he does. He says he's the Messiah, which is a, a king, not in the way that uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, is thinking about, but he does claim to be a king. We closed last week with uh, Pilate handing Jesus over to be crucified. And the first step of that process is to be flogged. So that's to be whipped. Um, no no limit on the number of times, uh, the, the number of lashes that Jesus took, and that was with the whip that had bone or little bits of metal at the end of it. So the, the intention of that was to was torture, but also to soften up the victim for crucifixion. And so that's what we're going to look at today is Jesus's crucifixion and his death, starting in verse 16. The soldiers, so these are Roman soldiers, led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on Jesus and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And the soldiers forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what, it, what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked Jesus among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So Jesus is mocked. This is a theme that runs throughout. He's mocked by the Jewish soldiers. He's mocked by the Roman soldiers. And then he's mocked by all of those who witness his crucifixion to mock is to make fun of or to ridicule there it's heaping kind of insult to injury um jesus uh, he's been convicted of saying he's the king of the jews and so that that's what they're making fun of they dress him in purple which is a color of royalty they put a crown of thorns on his head there's a picture of one of the thorns courtesy of tim and rachel gelinas those things that they're gnarly thorns they put those on his head again another way of ridiculing Jesus, they, they, they bow before him. All, again, all of it, they're just making fun of him. Uh, that's what they're doing, which is something that Jesus said would happen to him all the way back in chapter 10. He said, this is, this is what's going to happen, and we see it 
playing out in real life. And then they lead him away to crucify him. So kind of broad overview on crucifixion, lots of variation. It really depended on the soldiers who had a prisoner kind of under their watch. They could pretty much do whatever they wanted. And so there was, depending on that group, that things, they, they could be very sadistic. But in general, a crucifixion, you were flogged first, and then you were led out to the site where you'd be crucified. So it was a vertical stake in the ground or a tree, and you were led to that site, and that site was somewhere public. So crucifixion was a brutal form of execution, but it was also intended to intimidate everyone who saw it. The Romans were in charge, and they wanted everybody to know, here's what happens to you if you don't toe the line. If you're going to buck us, this is what's going to happen. So it was intended not just to inflict pain on the victim, but fear in those who saw it. So it was always done in public, not necessarily for the Jews. It was not done in Jerusalem, but on a, probably a major road right outside the city. So the person who was crucified, you, you could be crucified on an I, an X, or a T. Most people were crucified on a T. So you've got the vertical stake in the ground. The victim has to carry the cross beam to the place of crucifixion. Jesus was so weakened by his flogging that he couldn't. And so the Roman soldiers made a guy named Simon, who we don't know, carry his cross the rest of the way. We do know his sons. That's why Mark mentions them, Alexander and Rufus. In Romans 16, 13, there's mention of a guy named Rufus, probably the same guy. Mark was written to the church in Rome, so there's a connection there. He's saying, hey, you know, y'all know this guy. It was, it was his dad who carried the cross for Jesus. You also carried a sign with whatever the charges were against you for Jesus. It was king of the Jews. You get to the crucifixion site and you're attached to that cross beam, either nails or ropes. Jesus was nails. Then you're hoisted up on the vertical. Uh, not you're not necessarily, you know, 10 feet high or anything. You're just, just your feet are off the ground. Um, it seems like Jesus, he, he's high enough that people needed a uh, a stick with a, to, to reach his mouth with a sponge, but it's not like, again, he's not, he's not 10 feet high off the ground or anything like that, I don't think. Then your feet are attached to the vertical, either through nails or ropes. Jesus was nailed. And then that was it. And the, the thing that made crucifixion so cruel was how long it took. Two to four days you would be hanging on the, on the cross because the, the, the process itself didn't damage any of your vital organs. So you, you died just over the course of days. And if you were on the T, like Jesus was, the, the, the way you died was it was asphyxiation. You couldn't get oxygen to your organs. So all, if you're hanging like this, all of your weight is hanging on your chest. It's difficult to take a deep breath. The only way to do that is to push up with your legs. And then you obviously have a nail through your feet. And so that's going to cause you a lot of pain. But that's the only way to get a good breath. And eventually you just wear out. That's why in John it says they break the, the legs of those who are being crucified with Jesus so they'll die quicker because then you can't push up at all. And so, again, that usually for most people took between two and four days. It was very slow and agonizing death and you're just, your strength just, just kind of ebbed away. And then at some point you couldn't get a good enough breath and you basically were starving your, your organs of oxygen. Very cruel way to die. Uh, you're also, I didn't mention this, most people who were crucified were crucified naked. It does seem that there were, the Romans made some accommodations when they crucified people around Jerusalem for the sensitivities of the Jews, and they were at least allowed to keep a loincloth on. So that's, I mean, that's, the, the whole thing, again, is intended to humiliate, to degrade, to inflict pain, and to cause horror in all of those who are looking at it, to make them say, all right, we're not, we're not going to do anything that's going to make us wind up 
like those folks. Jesus was offered a narcotic. That's a wine mixed with myrrh. It would have deadened the pain to some degree. He doesn't take it. He wants to be fully conscious of what's going on. Clothes were more valuable then than they are now, so the soldiers were allowed to, to, to gamble or, or throw dice to see who got, the, who got Jesus' clothes. That's spelled out more clearly in John. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on that. And then, again, it was just a process of waiting on the victim's to die. And during that time, people continue to come by and mock Jesus. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So Jesus, his death is unusual. and normally takes 48 to 96 hours. Jesus dies in six between nine and he's, he's crucified at nine and he's dead at three in the afternoon. And the highlight, if you can imagine, the highlight of the whole book of Mark is that one statement from the centurion. Surely this is the son of God. Way back in chapter one, verse one, Mark starts writing and he says, he wants us to know that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. And this is the first guy who's acknowledged it. Nobody else has acknowledged Jesus as the son of God. And it's the irony that it's a Gentile who is, in the, who is superintending the crucifixion of Jesus, who'd been an active part in the death, the execution of Jesus, he's the one who recognizes Jesus for who he is, who he really is, the Son of God. What, what is it about that? It says when he saw the way that Jesus died. How did Jesus die? Well, one, he died quickly, six hours instead of uh, two days or three days or, or four days. In John's gospel, it says Jesus actually gave up his spirit. It's, there's this idea, it, it seems to me, that Jesus decided when he was going to die. And he, he died after six hours. He didn't kind of linger on the cross. There's a, he, he cries out loudly twice, which would have been very unusual. Again, if you can imagine, if you can't take a deep breath, very difficult to cry out with a strong voice. And Jesus does that twice. Once when he's praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at, at the end, when he gives up his spirit, that would have caught the attention of the centurion as well. And then obviously, if it turns dark at noon, like that's going to, you're going to notice that. There's no natural explanation for that phenomenon, like no, no eclipse. No, people have done all the meteorology stuff. It's, it was just it was a, a sign from heaven, and the centurion saw that. So he's putting those pieces together, and he says, surely this man is the son of God. And again, that, that, that's the point of all of Mark's gospel. It's for us to recognize that as well. And the idea is we won't know who he is except through his death. That was the song that we just sung. We won't know him for who he really is if we can't get apart from the cross. It takes his death for anybody to see him clearly. And so when we think about Jesus, we look at him through the lens, through glasses of the cross. A couple of things I want you thinking about. We're going to take communion here in a minute. And I want you thinking about a couple of things. This, the, Romans 5.8 says that uh, this is, is how we know what love is. Or, or this is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, 
Jesus died for us. When we talk about Jesus' death, there's a part of us that can kind of get focused on the pain and on the suffering and on the brutality of his crucifixion. And that's, it's real. All of that is an expression of God's love. When we say God loves us, that's cliche for us. It's something that we've heard all of our lives. And you, we, you hear it every Sunday and m- maybe even more than that. And it's easy for us to, to lose sight of what that one word love means. What does it mean for God to love us? We just read what it means for God to love us. It means that the father willingly sent his son and the son willingly embraced the will and the plan of the father. And that plan, that purpose in order to reconcile us to God, was for Jesus to suffer and die. So there was the torture, the flogging, and the beating. There was the humiliation and the mockery, blindfolding him, hitting him, saying, prophesy, who hit you? Soldiers dressing him up like a king and bowing down in front of him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. While he's hanging on the cross, people walking by and hurling insults at him. And then ultimately... It's his separation from the Father. We talked about that last week. Unfathomable for us. How can this God who is one being and three persons, how can that one being, how can they be separated? But for this time and the only time, Father and Son are separated. All of that is an expression of God's love for you and God's love for me. Again, that word, God loves us, it can almost be trite. Slow down and think about this expression, this demonstration of love, the the willingness of the Father and the Son to endure, not just the physical pain and discomfort, not just the emotional pain and discomfort, but the relational separation between Father and Son. That's the agony that he's feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why he says, my soul is in agony to the point of death. It's the, it's, it's, it's the separation from the Father. And they willingly embrace that in order for us to be reconciled to God. When, when, when darkness comes on the land, that's a sign of God's judgment. Amos 8 has a verse that says, talk, says the day of the Lord, which is a day that God, don't think day, 24 hours, think time. The time when God is going to judge the earth says it's going to be dark at noon. And so that kind of ties into this. I think actually the, the fuller picture or, the, or the, the deeper meaning, if I can say it that way, remember this is Passover week. And so according to John, Jesus is crucified at the time when all of the, the lambs are being sacrificed in the temple. So if you were going to eat your Passover meal, then your, your, the lamb that you ate had to be sacrificed that day at the temple. It was an offering. You didn't, just, you didn't buy an already slaughtered lamb from Kroger, and you didn't do it on your own. You took it to the temple, and the priest sacri- he slaughtered the lamb for you in the ritual way, and it was an offering, and they gave it back to you, and then you cooked it and ate it. All of that happened on the afternoon that Jesus is being crucified. That John, one of his unique contributions to who Jesus is, is the Lamb of God. That You only see that in John. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's tying everything back into Exodus. And if you go back and read Exodus, the, la- the ninth plague, there's ten total, the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. Darkness covers the whole land of Egypt. And it says, it's not just dark, it's a darkness that you can feel, the Bible says. It's not just a lack of light. It's a, it's, it's a sign. Judgment is coming. You need to wake up. And the Egyptians don't. 
And that night, after that plague is over, then God says to the Israelites, this is, here's what's next. The angel of death is going to pass through and kill the firstborn of, of everyone who doesn't have the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. So sacrifice a Passover lamb. We see darkness from noon to three, and then Jesus died. It's a parallel to what happens in Exodus. Jesus is the lamb of God, the Passover lamb. And this darkness is a sign of God's judgment. And the thing for me, we can forget. It's, it's, it's God's judgment. It's the Father's judgment on the Son. It's not his judgment on the soldiers. It's not his judgment on the mockers. It's not his judgment on the deniers. It's not his judgment on the betrayers. It's not his judgment on the deserters. It's his judgment on the side. The sinless one. That's what it means for him to die in our place. He's separated so we never have to be. The darkness, all of that is directed at Jesus. That picture of it becoming dark from noon to three, that's, that's the hour that Jesus is saying, I'm dreading that. That's why his soul is in agony to the point of death. It's because of all of that judgment from the Father being directed at the Son, the innocent one, yours and mine. He, he takes the full weight of that. And in the midst of that, that's why he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. Why does he, because that's what he's experiencing. To be forsaken is to be abandoned, to be deserted, to be left behind, to have relationships severed. That's what he's experiencing on the cross. Why? Because he's become sin. And the wages of sin is death. Death is just the fruit of separation from God, the source of life. That's what he's experiencing. He has been forsaken, again, which we can't fathom what that means, but it's real. And then, when he dies, the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. It's the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the new covenant. The holy place is the place where God was said to live in the temple. The only one person could go in there, the high priest. He could go in once a year for a few hours on the Day of Atonement. His uniform had bells around the hem just in case he died. If, you, if, if the bells quit ringing, the assumption is he died. And he had a rope tied around his ankle so he could pull him out because if you went in to get him, then you were going to die too. That's how serious entering into the presence of God is. Again, not because God's looking to kill people, but because he's holy, he loves people. He's saying, y'all, you're not ready for this yet. You are not ready for this yet. If you're going to enter my presence, hear all of the things. Just this person for just these hours, just this day. He's got to come in with blood to atone for his sins and the sins of everybody else. This is no joke. Again, not because I don't love you, but because I do. When Jesus dies, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Who does that from top to bottom? From heaven to earth. The way to the Father has been opened. Read Hebrews 9 and 10. The way to the Father has been opened. We can now boldly approach the throne of grace. We take that so for granted, just like we take the love of God for granted. That's cliche for us. The fact that we can 
boldly approach the throne of grace. We don't have to worry about dying in the presence of God. We don't have to worry about his holiness burning us up. And so we can come. And, and all, sometimes we take that for granted and we don't. And sometimes we're just flipping about it. Occasionally there's a, a kind of a reverent joy within us. And that's we want to cultivate that. But we, again, lose sight sometimes of what Jesus made available and possible for us. That we can actually be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. That, he, can, that we, he draws near to us and we can draw near to him without fear. Those are two signs on the cross. The darkness. Jesus separated from the Father so we don't have to be. The, 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 the curtain being torn in two. We no longer have to stay at a distance or have other people approach God on our behalf. You don't need a priest anymore. You are one. We can boldly come before him. We can rest in his presence. We don't have to be afraid any longer. The cross does all of that. That's the, the, as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't focus a whole lot on the, 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 the details, the, the physical aspects of what's going on. They want us to see the meaning behind it. And those are two big pieces for us. Darkness and a temple curtain being torn in two. And what does that communicate to us? He's judged so you don't have to be. The temple was, the curtain was torn so you can approach and I can approach the Father boldly. So we take communion. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is more than remembrance. It's sacrament. It's an opportunity for us to receive the grace of God. And that's what we want to do. We want to receive his grace today. There's a, there's a, a ritualistic component. And you're breaking off bread and dipping it in juice. And you do that every time. But if you do that in faith, actually engaging your heart, saying, I, I recognize, Father, that this bread and this juice, this is, a, this is a picture of your great love for me. I, I, I want to take it as such. And that's the, the thing I want us most thinking about today as you take communion. This is an expression of God's love for you. God demonstrates his love for you. In this, while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. He took the judgment that was rightfully yours for the sins you've willfully committed. He was forsaken. He was separated so you never would have to be. The curtain was torn in two so you can boldly and confidently enter into the presence of the Father. One other thing I wanted to share before we take communion. I was thinking about that idea of being forsaken. So in reality, none of us are. We're, we won't be. Jesus was forsaken so that we're not. Hebrews 13, 5, God says, never will I leave you or never will I forsake you. But many of us feel this way. And I don't want to diminish that. Again, like the, the reality is we're not forsaken. But our experience is that, that we are. And I do think everybody experiences this at least once. I really think it's more than once. But certainly, I think everybody in your Christian life, in your walk with Jesus, you're going to go through at least one period of time where you feel abandoned, deserted, left behind by God. And there's a couple of different ways of thinking about this. I'm going to move through it pretty quickly, but I recognize this is very tender for some of you. So I'm not being flippant. I'm just for the sake of time. 
So the two general ways that two general causes behind this. One is we've left God. Our hardness of heart, our rebellion has created separation. It's the story of the prodigal son. The son says to the father, give me my inheritance, I'm out. And that's what he does. The father father liquidates, gives him his inheritance, and the son leaves and goes to what Luke says is a far country. The separation between father and son is real. It's not imagined, it's real. And the consequences are also real. When the son runs out of money, the distance between him and his father, again, it's real. And the consequence is you're not supported. You're on your own. So you're slopping pigs. There's not a worse job for a Jewish man. You're feeding pigs and you're wishing you could eat their food. The father didn't go anywhere. The son's the one that left. And that can happen to us. Most of us, our rebellion is not that blatant, but we do tend to harden our hearts to the leading of the Holy Spirit when he's wanting us to do something that we simply don't want to do. We love being the boss. We love it. See, essence of sin is independence. I want to do my thing my way. You can help me. That's great. But there's a point where what God asks us to do is not what we want to do. And if, you're, if we're hardening our hearts, that creates a distance. And that distance is real and has consequences. If that's you, good news. As soon as the son turns around, the father welcomes him home. Communion for you. It's an invitation to come home. There are others of you, and this is probably more so the case for people who are kind of genuine and earnest in their following, maybe I won't say genuine, who are earnest in their following of the Lord. God at times takes a step back from us. Interesting verse in 2 Chronicles about Hezekiah, who was a good king, one of the best. I mean that in terms of his righteousness, not in terms of his effectiveness, although he was effective as well. But in terms of his righteousness, that's the way the Bible judges kings. It's not based on what they do in terms of how they rule. It's based on their faithfulness to the Lord. And Hezekiah was one of the best, top three for sure. And towards the end of his life, it says God left him to test him and see what was in his heart. To test, to to determine the quality of Hezekiah's faith. And again, this is a righteous man. Not perfect for sure, but certainly a righteous man. Again, he's held up as one of the, the two or three best kings in the history of Israel, Judah. God leaves him for a time to test him. Let's see what's in his heart. There's things that God wants to kind of draw out of us. Let's see the the quality of your faith, the depth of your love, the strength of your trust. This is the one that I think every one of us, if we're following Jesus, you're going to do that at some point. He's going to, quote, take a step back. He's going to go silent, go dark. Not because he's upset with you, not because you've sinned, not because he's angry, not because he doesn't care, not because he's busy. It's a test. He wants to see, and he wants you to see the quality of your faith. Let's see. If I, if I remove the, quote, benefits of my presence, no more warm and fuzzies, no more clear direction. Bible, just like reading a phone book. Y'all don't even know what a phone book is. It's a... Uh, <laughs> 
I don't know what I don't know what a thing would be. Like reading a y'all know what a dictionary is either. <laughs> reading something really boring. That's what it is. Prayer, waste of time, bouncing off the ceiling. God will lead you into that to see how are you going to respond when you don't feel me, when you don't hear me, when you don't sense me, when walking with me honestly feels like drudgery. What are you going to do? You're going to keep walking. Are you going to quit? Let's see. Let's see. It's where some of you are today. I want you to see communion as a promise. He didn't withhold his son from you. How much more will he give you all things? Maybe not today. You may not sense. Morning's coming. Let's pray. If you're helping with communion, you can come up. Ministry teams, if you would, as well. Bo. It's a lot of stuff. I want you again, I, I, my, my hope, I want you thinking about, meditating on, engaging with the love of God for you. The cross is a demonstration of that. All that Jesus willingly embraced. You can go back and read. We've seen three predictions in Mark where Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to me. He was fully aware of what he was saying yes to. And he said yes out of obedience to his father and love for us. The father knew what the son was going to endure. And he sent him in order to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. So as you take communion today, again, do so in faith, saying to the Lord, and if you're willing, you can just pray this, God, would you strengthen me right now with power through your spirit in my inner person so that Jesus would dwell in my heart through faith? And would you meet, would I recognize that I'm rooted and established in love? And would you give me power together with all of the other people in this room to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love that you have for me expressed on the cross? Would you help me to know this incredible love that surpasses knowledge, that I would be filled to the fullness of the measure of your love? Would you take communion with that in mind? For those of you who are feeling forsaken, you can just ask the question really quickly. Holy Spirit, is it me? Am I the one that moved? And he'll convict you. God doesn't desire distance. Jesus died for the sake of intimacy, to draw us near, not to push us away. So he'll let you know. The majority of the time, that's, that's not it. It's a test. And if that's you, we want to pray with you. We'll certainly pray that God would lead you through. We pray that your faith, we want to pray that your faith would be refined and would show itself more precious than gold. And at just the right time, 
God would break into your life in a tangible and experiential way again. And until that moment, that you would stand firm and continue to put one foot in front of the other. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you work in each one of our hearts? Would you minister to us through this act of communion? Would you fill us with grace? Would you lead us more deeply into the great love the Father and the Son have for us? I pray that we would know that and live out of that. That would be the ground and the foundation for all that we do. And God, for those who are experiencing what they would say is, is abandonment, desertion, loneliness, forsakenness. They have good company. And God, I pray that you would minister into their hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 